This is Innovating a Bright Future. Hello and welcome back to another bonus episode of Innovating a Bright Future. I'm your host, Avery Kreiwolt, and this is the show where I walk you through the innovative and revolutionary technologies driving climate action and laying the foundation for a sustainable future. I hope you've been enjoying the show, getting inspired, taking action, and talking about climate change because that is what this is all about. Anyways, I want to set the stage for this bonus episode, so here we go. I have a friend that works in the oil and gas sector. This friend enjoys challenging the work that I'm doing with this podcast in particular. And I appreciate when they challenge me on something because, first of all, they're pretty respectful in how they approach it, which is always nice. But it also makes me think even more deeply about the problems that I delve into on this podcast. It's not always easy to take criticism or indulge others' opinions, but it's important because it's very obvious through our interactions as they've gone on that we are learning from one another. I gain insight into how others think and feel about these issues, and I get the opportunity to teach them too. At the end of the day, we leave the conversation with something new to think about, and I believe that is extremely important. So back to the actual topic. So one of the things that this friend of mine brought up is that on one of my previous episodes, a guest had mentioned that we have no method of measuring climate change. That is not verbatim at all, it's completely paraphrased, because I have no idea how podcasters like Tim Ferriss just reach into the archives of their brain and pull out direct quotes from previous episodes. That feat amazes me every time. So I want to clarify what that means. We have no method of measuring climate change. Well, we have temperature measurements that are clearly and unequivocally trending upwards. We also have air content measurements that show us blatantly and unapologetically that our air pollution has gotten worse year over year, up until COVID at least. And we also have data on climate impacts, like tropical storms, heat waves, severe weather, droughts, fires, floods, and famines. We can see that all of those are definitely getting worse as the years go by. This is all empirical data. We can measure the frequency of storms, we can test air quality, we can also observe that as greenhouse gas content increases, so does average temperature, and so do these climate impacts. We know that they are related. My friend here is not trying to deny climate change. They recognize that the world is changing, not for the better, at an alarming rate. They're also not trying to pull the whole correlation does not imply causation shtick because we've heard from tens of thousands of climate scientists, in large part thanks to the IPCC and their reports, and is in fact causation, not merely correlation. What my friend is really referring to here is the empirical data behind the relationship. We cannot say, at least I cannot, because I haven't heard it from a reputable source, that if we add another gigaton of carbon to our atmosphere, there will be 10 more wildfires per year. We can't say that we are 43% towards an important climate tipping point. We can't say that tropical storms will get 10% worse year over year until we solve climate change. This was a really important moment for me, because it showed me that at least some of these people, and we all know someone, who are reluctant to accept climate change as fact, Don't hold that position purely out of spite and stubbornness. Some people simply need more data before committing to changing what happens to be a large part of their identity. Because when it comes down to it, we have to consider that the generations prior to mine were raised in a very different political and societal climate, where climate change either wasn't a problem at all, or it was a problem to be dealt with centuries down the line. 
Do I believe that there is more data than you could ever want to warrant mass scale changes? I do believe that, yes. But many generations were raised completely alien to the concept of climate change, and they think differently than my generation and I do. Now one of the reasons that this empirical data that certain individuals are searching for is missing is that it's really hard to measure. The world is unimaginably complicated. I mean, we're in the 21st century, and we have identified what we believe to be, at this point, the smallest divisible building blocks of life. We have taken pictures of galaxies billions of light years away. But the weatherman? It sure seems like he's still wrong, like, 70% of the time. And no, I'm not trying to just throw shade at meteorologists. I'm showing you that the function of Earth's weather and climate patterns are really complicated and extremely hard to understand, never mind measure empirical data of things that are, by nature, not empirical. Intensity of storms, for example, or the advance of climate change towards a tipping point. We can make educated guesses, and we're pretty good at them too. The most relevant is, of course, the 1.5 degree deadline. The IPCC, along with many others, have continually stated that if the global average temperature rises 1.5 degrees compared to pre-industrial levels, climate change will most likely hit irreversible tipping points, making it exponentially more difficult or even impossible to reverse certain impacts. We can predict, as we have successfully over the past decade, what year will have severe wildfire catastrophes and what years certain places will be pummeled by tropical storms the worst. But we can't, with the technology we have today, assign a percentage of progression of climate change or an exact increase in the intensity of storms for every ton of carbon in the atmosphere. We know that climate change is progressing, and we know that storms will get worse. And for me, that's more than enough. The bottom line is, if we wait until we can measure the progression of climate change, we will probably see that the percentage is already past 100%. We can't wait that long. So thanks to this friend of mine, I better understand at least one of the barriers to widespread climate action. And in response, I would genuinely ask those individuals who struggle with accepting the impending reality of climate change. On behalf of my generation and the generations to come after me, suspend your disbelief. Just this time, accept that correlation, along with millions of hours of hard science, experiments, observations, and independent scientists, does warrant causation, and it is important and urgent. Because we simply don't have time to wait. We have to work together in the belief that if we do not, climate change will impact people across the world, and it will hit hard if we don't stop it. The other substantial reason that empirical data at this scale is difficult to come by is that greenhouse gases, and on a larger scale pollution, have been treated as externalities for over a century, since the dawn of the age of fossil fuels. This is also one of the main reasons that some individuals find the concept of climate change difficult to accept. Pollution as an externality in essence means that, when considering the cost to own, operate, maintain, and dispose of literally anything, pollution has never been considered. Greenhouse gas production has never been a deciding factor in whether or not governments build more coal plants, or cities are designed in a fashion where cars are almost ubiquitously required to carry out any basic task. In fact, these gases have never been a factor, period. While developing our modern world, the question of will this harm the environment, or even will this cause harm for the people living in the immediate area, 
was largely never even considered. Now that we know that pollution has a significant impact on public health, as well as the health of our planet, we need to take care to factor in the pollutant impact of all of our decisions. Because carbon does have a price. It's reflected in the hospital bills of those who have been contaminated by air and water pollution. It's even more reflected in the billions of dollars in damages to infrastructure and personal property as a result of the increasing intensity and frequency of extreme weather events. This is what we now know as carbon accounting, and it's the practice of making pollution, especially greenhouse gas pollution in this context, a meaningful factor in decision making. So it's no mystery that the acceptance of climate science has been slow when billions of people around the world have at no point in their lives been told building this factory here might cause people cancer. Which, quick side note, disproportionately impacts people of color and indigenous peoples, but we will tackle that in an episode of its own. And that doesn't even consider, hey, building this uses an unreasonable amount of concrete which is really bad for our climate. No one has said that on large-scale decisions. It simply hasn't been a factor. For generations, greenhouse gases have existed as an externality. Out of sight, out of mind. And because of that, the sudden shift in the last decade to, please can we maybe start taking care of our planet a bit, seems sudden and unreasonable to those who grew up in a world where nothing could possibly go wrong. Today, in the early 2020s, we are beginning to see the very start of a concerted effort to account for carbon. To stop treating these planet and life-destroying gases as externalities and begin to consider them as not only a factor in what we do, but a deciding factor in what we do. So what does it mean to turn this externality into a central factor in all of our decisions? It means when considering a decision, carbon is considered throughout the process, and that applies to just about everything. Building a city, creating a transportation system, growing food sources, buying consumer products, establishing energy systems, almost every facet of our lives involve greenhouse gases or other pollution in some way. So for example, one of the most common questions that comes up when talking about implementing renewable energy is what about the cost of building these energy plants, especially hydropower dams or wind power turbines. And that's great. That's exactly what carbon accounting is. Hydro dams use massive amounts of steel and concrete when being built. It generates significant greenhouse gas emissions to produce concrete and steel. That's what we need. That has to be a factor in how we think about progress and development. Now, quick clarification. Yes, it takes concrete and steel to make hydropower dams, but it also takes a lot of pollution-intensive gases to build coal or gas-powered plants, as well as nuclear power plants. The other important aspect of carbon accounting is the concept of life cycle emissions. While, like I said, the concept of including greenhouse gases in the building costs just like money or manpower is starting to be popularized, these factors only include the production costs. What we really need to start considering is factoring in the emissions from every part of a product's life. Like our power plant example, even a hydro dam, which is one of the most intensive renewable energy facilities to set up, both in terms of capital investment and sunk carbon costs. In a hydropower facility, yes, concrete and steel is used in the initial build and are very carbon intensive, but following that there is very little input. You basically just run the water through the generators and boom, electricity. No more emissions from the operating procedure. Not so for a coal or fossil gas plant. 
And quick side note, fossil gas is methane, which has been known in the past as natural gas. From now on, I'll be calling it fossil gas because that's what it's made of, and the name of natural gas is just another method of some energy companies trying to greenwash their product to look more eco-friendly. If you don't recognize the term greenwashing, don't worry, we have an episode on that as well. So these fossil fuel plants, like coal or fossil gas, they may have production costs that are relatively similar to a hydropower dam, or even less in some cases. But that is only one piece of the puzzle. Unlike hydropower dams, fossil fuel facilities require a fuel input, which means mining raw materials, which is an environmental disaster of its own, plus the emissions from mining and transport machines. Then they have to refine their products before they put them into the plant, which means more chemicals and more pollution. And we can't forget that every milliwatt of electricity produced by a fossil fuel facility comes with an ingrained carbon cost from just burning the fuel itself, which simply doesn't happen in the hydropower dam. There can be a lot of complication to carbon accounting, but when it comes to a straight-up energy source, choosing renewable sources is always, 100% of the time, better than choosing fossil fuels. All the time. There is no scenario where a coal plant should be built above a solar farm for environmental reasons. Ever. We will go into how this factors into the choice between electric cars and gas-powered cars in another bonus episode, along with a whole bunch of other important choices that can seem confusing at times. The best way to illustrate this is by taking a look at grocery bags, actually. Grocery bags are on the forefront of everyday life. Day in and day out, getting groceries is a part of life, so it's something that everyone can relate to. At one point, all there was was paper bags. Then plastics were the modern thing to do, so every grocery store went to plastic bags. Now in some places that I have personally seen, recently, due to the rise of sustainability and the shift towards greener methods of living out day-to-day -day lives, paper bags are making a comeback. In response to this, some people have taken to social media to refute the use of paper bags because they're in fact worse for the environment. While on the surface level, the pushback against plastic bags is for the most part in good faith. In reality, the production of paper bags is more intensive than plastic ones because paper comes from removing trees, which actually does in fact have a greater emissions impact than merely using byproducts of fossil fuel production which is where plastic bags come from. That's because, for the most part, plastic bags come from byproducts, and any fossil fuel processing would have happened regardless. This is where the concept of life cycle emissions comes in, because while the carbon production cost is higher for paper bags, what about after production? Well, both types of bags can technically be reused, and it's hard to say which is more easily reused. There's no real maintenance, I mean, it's a bag. What about end of life? This is where the majority of carbon accounting falls short. Carbon accounting is really bad at keeping track of end-of-life emissions. So when the product, or whatever it is, reaches the end of its lifespan, what happens? Well, for our bag example, paper bags are great. They can be composted. Throw paper bags in a composting box, leave it for a couple of months, and poof. It's almost entirely absorbed back into the soil with no chemical leakage or residue but this process does release some greenhouse gas emissions. Plastic bags, on the other hand, don't decompose as easily. As objects break down, they're ripped into smaller pieces and can change form, becoming toxic chemical waste or harmful emissions like methane. In any case, they usually remain as harmful carbon compounds instead of naturally occurring carbon compounds that organisms and soil can reabsorb and use to build new life. 
To fully integrate carbon accounting into decisions like this, we have to consider distribution, meaning how the bags get where they need to go. The reality is, paper bags are very substantially heavier than plastic ones, and therefore cost a lot more fuel to transport from place to place for the same amount of bags. And then there's recycling to consider. It takes chemicals and a lot of water to recycle paper bags, but plastic bags are rarely recycled anyways, so do we even consider it a factor? What if they end up as litter, and then, and then there's microplastics in our water and in our blood, and surely we don't want that. Plus, plastic bags are a product of fossil fuels at the end of the day, and we have to move away from that, so that has to factor in. And don't even get me started on cotton totes or reusable bags. They could be easier to source sustainably, much easier, because they can be made of recycled fabrics, but that process requires energy too and what does it all mean? Carbon accounting is difficult. It's really difficult. These questions are being asked every day by everyday people who are just trying their best to do the best for their planet. I think about stuff like this all the time and I'm sure you do too. These processes are extremely difficult to do as an individual. It's nearly impossible to take into account every part of an object's life cycle, and even if you do, finding the climate impact of each portion of the life cycle is just as difficult, if not more so. You could spend months trying to account for all the carbon in your home, and you probably won't get it all. This is where collective action comes in. As consumers, we have the right to know our own impact when we buy a product or service. So the best way to ensure that we have that right is to keep applying pressure to large corporations, distributors, logistics firms, and food production sources to bear all in terms of their climate impact. Because ultimately, it is our responsibility to make educated decisions that contribute to a sustainable future as often and widespread as we can. The companies that sell us those decisions won't offer it up easily though, which is why it is our responsibility to band together in this worldwide movement that is climate action and continue not only asking these companies to track and disclose their complete carbon accounting, but demanding it. Because when we do so, when we demand proper accountability for the pollution that has for decades existed outside of any consideration in the decision-making process, we create a feedback loop. You know how much I like feedback loops on this podcast. We demand more accountability, we make educated decisions that benefit the planet, companies recognize the demand for educated, sustainable choices is present, and they give us more sustainable options to choose from. When we act within this feedback loop, we can create incremental change. That doesn't mean that suddenly our food supply will go from one of the largest carbon sources to a net zero system overnight, but it means we can start moving these systems of our societies towards better choices and benefit the planet while we do it. And as we demand better carbon accounting in every one of our societal systems, maybe some of those people like my friend that I talked about earlier will find something in the climate space that they can continually learn about and be a part of this global climate movement. I think that's everything I have for this bonus episode. I hope you've enjoyed it. I hope you learned something as always. I know I'm definitely enjoying this season so far. I know this can be a very overwhelming and complicated topic, so I've put a couple links in the show notes if you want to read on for more information. And if you have questions or other challenges for me that you'd like to put forth, don't hesitate to reach out via all of the social media links in the show notes below. And finally, if you want to support the show directly, our Patreon is also in the show notes below. Choose a monthly donation, it's completely up to you, and anything you give is very much appreciated and keeps the show running. That's all I've got, thanks for being here, stay innovative, and I'll see you next week.